I guess for me, my story is I've gone through some heavy stuff sober and had to, I've had to digest some big chunks of truth, not just about myself, but about life on life's terms. Ultimately, I'm left feeling like I'm so grateful to have had the tools of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't have survived. I wasn't just looking at prison time. I was also drinking on a bleeding ulcer. I was crashing cars right and left. I was... I was trying real hard to die at an early age. In hindsight, I'm so grateful because I know that I wouldn't have had a shot at life. And those times when things have been the hardest, that I picked up the tools instead of picking up a drink or a drug, which I felt like, you know, I did not, I wanted to escape and not feel so many times through the hard stuff. Having not done that has made it possible for some of the greatest moments of my life. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, boys and girls. That was the voice of Miss Jennifer Jen E that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. And uh, she will not say it, but I will. Jen is absolutely legendary here in the North Texas area. She has done so much for so many uh, women and men throughout the area. Uh, uh, she, I just know that you're going to enjoy this episode very much. And uh, Jen has been sober since April 6th of 1997. Uh, we start off talking about her, uh, I guess what you would call her reluctancy. Is that a word? Reluctancy? Probably not. She was reluctant, let me just phrase it that way, to uh, come on Sober Speak for a variety of reasons, and uh, uh, we talk about that. Uh, one of the uh, most interesting parts to me that I did not know before I brought her on this uh, podcast today, and that is uh, she was a, uh, a deadhead, right? One of the grateful dead followers. And uh, she was on the way to a, uh, a Grateful Dead concert. Uh, I believe it was in the Missouri area. And she got into some trouble with the law. And I won't uh, ruin that story, but there was a, uh, a DEA inspection point. And uh, you know, one thing I forgot to ask her, I'm just sitting here singing in my head right now, a, a dead head sticker on a Cadillac. I wonder, I wonder if she was driving a Cadillac, but I have to catch up with her later and ask her that question. So anyway, she'll also talk about her life as a bartender, but before 
and after Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, how that changed, as, as you can imagine. Uh, she used to work on uh, 6th Street in uh, Austin, Texas, if you happen to know uh, where that is. Uh, uh, and one thing you're not going to want to miss is about her the story that she tells of her family and the journey with her family since she has been sober. Uh, and this is a story that you will not want to miss, I promise you. Okay, so now a couple little things. First of all, I, I want to say this. I know, I, I absolutely realize that there are so, so many other things you could be doing with an hour or however many minutes you spend listening to this podcast of your time. So I appreciate, I so much appreciate you tuning in uh, to this podcast. And I, I hope and I pray that by listening to this show, you were able to get a sense of what is possible for yourself and, to, and that you're able to glean some sort of hope from the amazing men and women that share their experience and strength on this podcast. And so that is my hope for you. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, I was in a, uh, I was traveling for work a few weeks back and I was in my hotel room, uh, at night and, uh, somebody had written in and I was replying to that email and, uh, you know, I just got, I, I didn't expect to say this as I'm actually recording this introduction, but, you know, I just got a little uh, uh, teary-eyed thinking about all the folks that are out there, uh, and, and I do, I, I, I pray for you guys, and I care for you guys, and, uh, and and I want the best for you, and I want you to be sober 24 hours at a time, and not only do I want you to be sober, I want you to be reasonably happy in this life. And so hopefully, just hopefully, Sober Speak can be a small, small part of your journey. Now, I have a couple of ask of you. Once again, I've said this before, if any of the speakers um, have meant something to you, have uh, affected you in a positive way, if you could just stop your device and uh, share either the podcast as a whole or that episode with a friend, I sure would appreciate it. If you're not following me on Instagram, please do such. I'm at at SoberSpeak, all one word. And uh, if you want to get added to our email distribution list, you can text the word sober, S-O-B-E-R to 31996. Once again, that's sober to 31996 and uh, uh, the automated response will walk you through that. Okay, now for some listener feedback and then we will get on to the one and only Miss Jen. All right, so Kathy M writes in, she says, hi, John, thanks so much for your podcast. I'm an addict working a 12-step program. Not alcoholic, but the AA message certainly speaks to me. Your guests offer so much. Their ESH helps me every time I listen. Now, it took me a while, Miss Kathy, to figure out what ESH meant, and I finally figured it out. I'm pretty sure that is experience, strength, and hope, so I know a new acronym. Um, anyway, she goes on, I recently heard Arlena and what she said about God, and step seven hit me really hard in the heart. Humility, surrender, patience, love, 
all of the qualities I want to allow into my life. God's will, not mine. I'm, I'm going to read step seven for seven days per Arlena's experience. I trust more will be revealed to me. Thanks to her for sharing her story. I related to so much of it. I had an alter ego similar to Nancy. Uh, and, uh, and she said, and John, thank you for your service, exclamation point. Many blessings, Kathy M. in Chicago. Well, thank you, Kathy M. in Chicago. Sure do appreciate that. And um, uh, just keep on keeping on out there. You know, and you got me thinking now, when Arlena was sharing on that previous episode, the thing that stuck out to me that she shared was, um, she said, if you are struggling with God, in all likelihood, you are struggling with someone else's conception of God. And I had never really thought of that. By the way, Arlena is episode number 62. It's called God Loves Me and Everything's Gonna Be Okay. Jackie E writes in, she says, hello, John, just wanted to reach out and let you know I am still listening and being enriched by your podcast. Smiley face. I recently listened to John S. Beyond Belief and Arlena A. again and downloaded both of their podcasts. I just want to thank you again for being of such great service. You are truly a 12-stepper, and I mean that as a compliment. Love, love, love you, Jackie E. in North, Northern California. Well, Jackie E. in Northern California, love, love, love right back at you. We're so glad you're tuning in and uh, spread the word up there in Northern California for us. Jonathan writes in on Instagram. I love this one. Jonathan is an Al-Anon. Uh, that was me speaking. And by the way, Jonathan now writes, I love your podcast, John. My beautiful boy is two years sober and I am working on my recovery in Al-Anon. Thank you for the message of recovery. My favorite episode is David G. I listen to that weekly. So much to learn in applying steps one, two, and three. And that is David G. Steps one, two, and three. Jonathan is referring to. And uh, but I, but I will say this, Jonathan. Uh, that makes my heart light to know two things. Number one, that, that you have found your stride in the program of Al-Anon. And number two, that your beautiful boy is two years sober. That is fantastic. Uh, finally, Jim S. writes in and Jim says, Hey, John. I attended a meeting Sunday afternoon in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and I recommended Sober Speak to the others there. After the meeting... After the meeting broke up, a lady came up to me and said, I was the second person to recommend Sober Speak to her this week. The word is getting around. I really enjoyed Vanessa's talk as a counselor and her yoga meditation, breathing relaxation exercise. But I was listening while I was walking in the woods and I got so relaxed that I walked off the trail... <laughs> and did a face plant into a tree three times. <laughs> Smiley face. Well, <laughs> my goodness. Anyway, it says, you're making a splash in the community, John. God bless you. And, and for the good you are doing for others, Jim S. Well, 
<laughs> I never thought about silver speak being a, uh, a a hazard or a risk to people's health walking in the woods, but I guess it can be. Anyway, uh, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. It's with Vanessa uh, S. And uh, on Vanessa's ep- uh, on Vanessa S's episode, uh, she does a breathing exercise with me, and I was relaxed as well. Now on to the one, to the one and only, ladies and gents, Miss Jen E. All right, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Miss Jen E. By the way, do you like to go by Jen or Jennifer? Jen's good. Jen? Uh, Jennifer's easier as an introduction just because people don't ask questions. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So we'll go with Jen. This is Jen, short for Jennifer E. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I first started Sober Speak, probably uh, a, a little over a year ago now, um, in the beginning, it was really just about me thinking, oh, I'd like to get some of my friends in here and have them recorded. And then maybe some of my other friends will listen, and this will work out fantastic. Now, it's turned into a little bit more than that, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, But the reason I'm explaining all that is because Jen was one of the very first people that I thought about having on Sober Speak. And I actually asked Jen to be on Sober Speak right at the beginning. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because now we're a little over a year into it, and uh, Jen has finally uh, agreed to come in here. And she's wincing a little bit right now as I'm actually telling this story. So I wanted, I just thought it'd be good because you're not the only one, right? I mean, people get a little, you know, nervous when you throw a little mic in front of their face and say, hey, go tell your story. And this is going to go out to a lot of people. So, um, oh, it's going out to a lot of people. Well, probably (laughs) no more than 10 at the most. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Um, And so um, I just wanted to talk to Jen about this on the front end because I know she's been tentative about coming in here. Um, But talk to me a little bit about that. What has been your uh, hesitation? It's a lot of things for me. Initially, when you first asked me, I was in the middle of my busiest year of my life. And I work weekends. My oldest son was wrestling on weekends. I didn't have any weekends to give. And so my initial I'm busy was earnest. Um, But it is true that I have felt a lot of resistance to wanting to do it. Um, And I I had to ask myself why I was resistant to it. And ultimately... You know, I am finally here because I finally didn't have um, any, you know, I didn't have anything on my calendar that I could say, sorry, I don't have any Saturdays. And um, I had to just, I, I had to have a look at it. Why is it bugging me? So ultimately it comes down to the usual fear and ego, um, being afraid of um, putting something out there I can't reel back. Mostly, I mean, mostly it's just that um, feeling of being out of control, the usual vulnerable. stuff that, that yeah, makes you feel uncomfortable. I got you. And, uh, but, and you've told your story from the podium, right? Many I have, times. but not, it has never been recorded. Right. And that changes 
things for me. Right. It, it, and it's on a microphone. It's a different format. It's on a podcast. You know, a lot of people are just really not familiar with podcasts yet, even though I know you are. Right. It's just a matter of it is a different format. Yep. So, well, listen, I appreciate you working through the, uh, the fear and uh, getting in here. And I wouldn't have been so persistent uh, if I didn't think that what you have to offer to the Sober Speak audience would be so valuable. Now, I have the pleasure of sitting in meetings on a consistent basis now for uh, 10 years or so uh, with Jen during meetings. And so I know that she has a story and I know that she is articulate uh, and I know that she works with a lot of women and I know that a lot of people have benefited from her years in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's why I wanted to have you in. I appreciate it. Ultimately, it came down to that for me to have to be able to say, if it helps one person, it doesn't matter how I feel about it, you know? So I'm, I'm glad to be here for that reason. Well said. All right. So I know you were a bartender. I was a bartender. And you were a bartender on 6th Street in Austin. I was. And for those uh, who are listening, right, because they're in different countries and such, yeah. uh, all those 10 people. Right. Uh, they explain to them what 6th Street is all about in Austin. Wow, yeah, 6th Street in Austin is, it's just like... Um, like the drag in any town, but it's um, it's different in Austin just because Austin is a the capital and b a college town, a huge university town. It's the capital of Texas, yep. just in case folks don't know. Yep, and um, and so it is where everyone goes. It's where all the bars are, bar after bar after bar, like lots of live music and partying going on. And so you were working there, and that's kind of where I, I, I'm, I think you ended up kind of bottoming out there. Is that correct? I did. I sobered up behind the bar. And so what is your sobriety date? <laughs> My sobriety date is April 6th, 1997. April 6th, 1997. So help me with the math there. Uh, I'm not uh, sure. Be almost 22. Wow. That's fantastic. It's crazy. So you, so you're, you're legal to drink now. You're 21. My sobriety is of drinking age. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in, so how did you end up in Austin? Were you born there? No, I was born and raised in Dallas and I went to college at the university of Arkansas just to get out of Dallas. And because, um, some, at the time, some family members had told me that, um, A, they would accept me, and B, it was a party town. And they had, I wanted to major in art and photography, and, and they said they had that major. They had that major, they would take my grades, and it was a party town, so I was excited to get out of here. And it was such a party town that I did not get to stay, um, <laughs> but a couple of years, yeah, my parents didn't enjoy paying out-of-state tuition for me to party. And so I came back to Dallas. I actually started bartending in Dallas when I came back then. And um, I, was, I was 19, and they were paying me to stay after work and taste beer so that I could be knowledgeable about what I was selling. And now, I thought, what was the legal age drinking? It was what 21, about? but you only have to be 18 to be TABC certified to serve. But... 
I guess technically speaking, if they're having you I, taste I, it I afterwards, yeah, it would, they, they didn't enforce it. That is serious then. gray area. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was being paid to stay after work and drink, and I thought I have arrived, but I didn't. Um, I I didn't like being that. I wasn't ready to be back home, and I felt like my style was being cramped, and so I fled for Austin. So I bartended here in Dallas for a bit and then went down to Austin and got a job on 6th Street. Did you go down there with anybody? or did you- I did go down there with somebody. I, I lived here or I lived in Dallas with my boyfriend at the time. We moved down there together and he managed one bar and I bartended at another. Very nice. So how long did that go on, the the, the, the bartending thing on 6th Street? And you um, made good money down yeah, there, Yeah, right? I made really good money. And if you don't spend it all on booze right. and other things, you can actually uh, yeah. enjoy Yeah, and when you bartend, living. especially in Austin, it, there's like a bartender's code. And so bartenders come in, you serve them. So we just like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So we never had a serious tab anywhere we went. Um, and that lasted... It lasted a few years before I quit drinking, and then I continued to bartend for a few years after I quit drinking. Okay. So let me take you backwards for a second. Yep. Then. So before you got to 6th Street and University of Arkansas and all that stuff, just tell me what you want to tell me regarding your 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 upbringing and, uh, you know. Yeah. I was raised in a really seemingly normal family. It was normal to drink. And... I say it was a relatively normal family because a lot of people that say, if you say I was raised in home where everybody was drinking, it sounds like that might be a dark place to be raised, but it wasn't. My family just, we sat around the table and played cards and played dominoes and everybody drank beer. Conviviality, it like the book It was conviviality. It was good times. Most of the time we had, um, I mean, there, it didn't come without, you know, some life on life's terms stuff, but it was a a pretty generally decent upbringing, you know, nice, good, close family and fun and happy. And I did just, um, I, my first drink, I think I was, I know I was under eight years old. I know because my parents were still married. And so it was before I was eight and my uncles, um, I asked for a sip of beer when everybody was sitting around playing cards. And my uncles thought that it would be cute to see what I thought of beer. And I think they thought I was going to think it was gross and I did not. (laughs) And then they thought that was cute, you know? (laughs) So, um, I, I, it's, it's crazy. It sounds crazy to me now. Uh, who I am now, but I started drinking regularly then when I was 11. So I took sips, random sips here and there since I was eight, but I started drinking all the time when I was 11. How did you now? So how do you, as an 11 year old, start drinking on a regular basis? Where was the access? Well, there was, there was some liquor in my house. Uh, There, I would go sneak stuff out of the liquor cabinet, but it was the eighties and everybody in the eighties left their garage doors open. Yes. And everybody kept their beer in the garage fridge. Yeah, and so yeah. we would go from house to house and gank beer from our neighbors. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, that, and, uh, and I also, I know, you know, I know it's Alcoholics Anonymous, but part of my story is I also started smoking pot when I was 11 too. I started drinking beer, drinking regularly, smoking pot, and smoking cigarettes all when I was 11. And I would play hooky from school, sixth grade. So that I could get high. Wow. 
So was there anybody else in your family at that time experiencing these things or were you kind of a black sheep, if you will? Both. Um, My brother and sister were four and five years older than me. So in the 80s, it was right after drinking age changed from 18 to 21. So my brother was my brother and sister when I started drinking were 15 and 16 and they were they were drinking regularly, too. I, we just, like, we went to a party school. It was kind of normal. Everybody drank. I really did grow up thinking everybody drank like we did because everybody around us did. And so they, they were drinking regularly, but I was still the black sheep. Like, they would have booze and they would party, but I was doing stuff like when they left the room, I would grab their flask of, like, Everclear and just tip it up and chug it as much as I could before anybody else saw what I was doing. So they were drinking and partying, but they were not, mine was escalated. Understood. Yep. So there's then at some point, and, and you mentioned, and I know this is a, uh, this is a podcast that generally speaking, uh, uh, you know, focuses on alcohol right. and I get it, but you know, I'm not out of the bounds of, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people who can relate to the drug bar. So talk about the, the drug piece and when you got involved with that. Yeah, really right away. Also, I started, obviously I started drinking first, but then drugs came up soon after. And, um, and that is, it's really funny because when I, it's funny to think about now, but I, when I turned, our book talks about, you know, trying to, switch and control it and, you know, try just liquor, just whatever. So my first experience with that was when I was 12, (laughs) when I went to junior high, I decided to quit hanging out with the friends I was hanging out with and join the FCA fellowship of Christian athletes. (laughs) And I was going to straighten up and fly right. And by that, I mean, I was just going to drink. I wasn't going to do drugs anymore. (laughs) So that's what I did. I, with, um, every intention of being a good little girl, started athletics, started FCA, and I quit doing drugs. And that lasted until I was about 14. And by the time I turned 14, all the jocks started doing drugs again, too. And was it a combination? Was there one in particular that you were drawn to in terms of the drug, or was it just all over the map? I, um, smoking pot was a regular staple. Um, and it, it actually... I actually quit drinking about a year and a half before my sobriety date, and I continued to smoke pot and pop pills. Um, so, um, but I did everything else too. <laughs> Almost everything else. I had a pact with one of my girlfriends who's sober now too. We had a pact that we would not shoot up. We would not shoot up heroin and we would not smoke crack. And we, because we both knew then, this is when we were 14, we both knew that we were um, alcoholics and addicts, and we knew that we would not be able to stop. We knew it would kill us. Eventually then, um, I know that, uh, I've heard you talk about uh, in meetings before, and I don't want to tell your story, but I know that you got up, you really got into some sort of trouble that led you down. I mean, you were facing some time, right? Yeah. And what was that about? Yeah, I got into lots of trouble. I got into lots of trouble. Like my like when I was a teenager, my parents called me Crash because I went through um I went through five cars 
before I was 21. I went through five cars. I rolled a four wheeler. I laid down a moped and had several other accidents, um, before I was 21. But then, um, around that time too, then I got into serious trouble. I, I, um, I traveled with the grateful dead when I had time off of work. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just, you know, be, yeah. So, um, we would bartend, we would sock cash away and we would take some time off of work and go travel around the country and hit a handful of shows and come back home and start working again. And, um, and one, one time I was on the way to a show in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was driving down the highway and there was a sign, a big flashing sign on the side of the highway that said DEA inspection one mile. And so I did what anybody with a car full of goods would do. And I freaked out and pulled off the highway and the, uh, I took the first exit, you know, with my heart in my shoes and the, there was a roadblock on the exit. So, you think they'd seen oh, yeah, that a, before, yeah, right? Yeah, sting. Like, there was nowhere, nowhere you needed to pull off there. It wasn't a gas station. There was nowhere to go. So anybody who took the exit was because they saw the sign that said DEA. So Do they still have those on I the road? Know. DEA? I I'm wouldn't not know now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I took the exit and, um, and had, like, an out-of-body experience because I um, was so terrified I just saw myself like fleeing and, uh, I didn't, I, um, I had, a, were you with anybody or I was we... with my boyfriend? I was driving and, um, we knew that because it was my car that I was going to go down and I knew that I needed someone to bail me out. So I told the cops it was all mine, everything that we had. So they searched the car. Um, they asked to search the car. I said, no, they said, we'll be back with a search warrant. And I said, Oh, what? whatever and let them search it so i had a ton of stuff because we were packed to see several shows and i you know had the fear of running out of anything so i would make sure i had tons of stuff <laughs> and so i had a ton of all different kinds of stuff in my car and they um they took it they gave me a log of evidence they took my picture and let me go and that night we made it to the dead show in st louis and the grateful dead Encored with I fought the law and the most one of the most serendipitous moments of my life I sat next to out in the lawn of this huge amphitheater randomly sat next to an attorney from Austin it was um, very strange a strange term of events but um, I I didn't hear anything back from it for a long time um I'm trying to think of the timeline. It was probably, it was probably at least a couple years. It was probably at least a couple years. By that time, I had, um, I had quit drinking, and but I hadn't sobered up because I knew alcohol was the problem. But I was not ready to be sober. So when you had sobered up, were you going to AA or were you no, just doing it? On I was your own? just not. I was just. I was just dry. I was just. I just knew I had to quit drinking. So I quit drinking, but I. But forget being sober. I wasn't going to come to AA because those people don't drink. Um, you know, there's so I knew I didn't, I just wasn't ready to be sober. So I really, I really thought alcohol was the problem. I thought if I quit drinking, everything would be okay. And it took a while for me to figure out that wasn't right. But, 
um, I just one day got a letter um, in the mail and the return address said St. Louis, Missouri, like, you know, correctional facility or something. I can't remember what it was. St. Louis something official. And my heart just sank. And I knew that um, it, it was a letter that said I was looking at 14 years in prison for mm. possession. And it took him two years Almost to catch two years. up with that. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So at this point, are you still with the same boyfriend? I was. And, uh, and it was coming, it was, it was all, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back because, um, for my part, um, I needed a criminal attorney. And he, you know, was with me and it was half his stash. And I felt like he, I felt like we needed to talk to our parents to get me help (laughs) to stay out of prison. And he was unwilling to let anybody to ask for help. Um, And so just kind of left me hanging with the whole deal. And, um, and it was just, uh, it was the straw that broke the camel's back in a way that I had been not drinking for 18 months, but I was dry and I was um, self-righteous and holier than thou and getting mad at him when he was getting drunk every night still, you know? And so I was, um, what I know now is if I don't drink and I don't have a program, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. So I had about, you know, a year and a half there of being restless, irritable, and discontent and blaming it on him. And when he wouldn't ask for help to help me stay out of prison, um, it, it was the end of it. And he, he got up and left. He told one of my, our best friends that he felt like he had to choose between me and alcohol. And there's a lot of other stuff that led up to it, too. We had also, six months prior, lost one of our best friends to suicide, a friend that couldn't stay sober. And, um, and so things just hadn't been happy in a while. And so he said, uh, he said he felt like he had to choose between me and alcohol. And I woke up one morning and he was throwing his stuff in a trash bag and out of there. And that is not my sobriety date, but it's the first time I went to a meeting. That was April 1st, 97. I went into a meeting because I was left like in a puddle on the floor in clear recognition that I had no one left to blame and I needed help. So that's April 1st, 97. Your sobriety date is April 6th. That's right. So I went in on the 1st and I just felt, you know, I was a mess and I felt like I was having a nervous breakdown and my life was crumbling around my ears and I took a Valium that was not prescribed to me. And so that, um, that was on the 6th. Yeah, that was actually, I came in on the 1st when it was all coming to a head and he left on the 6th and I took a Valium that day. That's the last time I've had anything that wasn't prescribed to me. Wow. Okay. So... Now you are, uh, I mean, this is just five days later, right? Yeah. And you're facing 14 years in prison. Yes. What, take me from there. Yeah, so um, I had a really intense um, experience with the third step because I, I feel like I really did my third step in front of a judge. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean, I, I had like, I don't know. I can't remember if it was like 60 or 90 days sober when I ended up having to go in front of the judge. Is that in Missouri? Or? Yeah. So you had to drive up I had there? I to go to Missouri. Was my, anybody with you? My sweet, forgiving dad 
took me out there and we acted like it was like a weekend getaway <laughs> and went and saw the sights and then, and then went and, uh, hung my head in front of the judge. And, um, it was, I say it was a experience with a third step because like the girl in front of me got two years probation for bouncing a check. And so I knew I was, I just knew that I was about to get some, I was about to do some time. And I had been earnestly working the steps with a sponsor and I was all in AA and I, and I had to go up there and, and really earnestly say to myself, okay, God, if I'm supposed to go to prison, I'm willing to go. It's obviously not what I want to happen with my life. But if I'm supposed to go be some big bad bitch, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I uh, I stood in front of the judge, and he gave me two years probation, same as that girl that bounced a check or wrote a hot check. Yeah. Wow. So. All right. So hold on just a second. We'll yep. be continuing our conversation with Jen E in just a moment. Just a reminder: you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www soberspeak.com there you'll find a, a back catalog of other episodes you can listen to for free you'll also find the donate button on our website if the spirit moves you to use it, do so you can uh, click on that please keep in mind this podcast is funded by you the listener sober speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions we are not allied with any sect denomination politics organization or institution, we do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Now back to Jenny. Okay, so you get in front of the judge. Um, he it was a he, right? Yep. Gives you two years probation. Um, what did you and your dad do after that? Were you celebratory? Were you oh lo- yeah, yeah. We were elated. I felt like. Um... I, I just can't even explain how thankful I was, like grateful to God and how, uh, how relieved I was. Cause I just knew that, that it had all caught up with me. I had had, um, I'd had a lot of trouble. I it said, I went through, you know, five cars and all that stuff before. One of them was a, a really, um, one of them was a DWI. One of them was blacking out and wrecking into a brick wall. I had, I had a lot of, I had a lot of reasons that, um, it all, I felt like it had all caught up with me and that I deserved what I was going to get, you know? So to, it felt like grace. Okay. So a lot of people would use, so, so at this point, people generally speaking, I should say, will go one or two ways. Either they will see it as grace and get plugged in more, uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous or wherever they're getting plugged into and start to give back, so to speak. And then other people will say, oh, wow, the heat is off. And now I can go back and drink again and get back to my life. But obviously you went the way, you went the latter. I was done. I was done. I, you know, my friend, I mentioned our best friend had killed himself. And I had watched him do um, probation and not be able to stay sober. And he kept having to go do UAs like pee in a cup, right? And it comes back dirty. He just, it kept happening. And um, having watched 
him go through that when I knew that I was looking at prison time. It was, um, it was, it was so obvious to me that I wanted to be done myself before a judge told me I had to be, because I was afraid if somebody told me I had to be, that I would rebel against it. I, I knew that I, I needed to do it for me. And I, and I did, I was, and I was all in by the time that happened. I had people from Alcoholics Anonymous actually write me letters of recommendation. I had my bosses write me letters of recommendation, family members write me letters of recommendation for that deal. And I, um, because I was sincerely done. Did you have a lawyer or was it just I you? Did, I had a, I got a, I hired a good lawyer who played golf with a judge. Good. <laughs> that helps too, <thing>, right? <laughs> little serendipity there as well. Yep. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So now you're an alcoholic. By the way, getting back to that boyfriend, or yeah. did he ever surface again? Or No. Um, nope. We went our separate ways. It was, and you hear in AA people say you got to change playgrounds and playmates. And I really at first thought, oh, that's not going to happen. I've been friends with these people since like junior high. These are my people. And it did happen. He ended up with all my friends in the split because I, you know, my behavior changed. I wasn't willing to keep doing the same things I had been doing. And he ended up with my friends and I ended up with the whole new batch of homies in AA. (laughs) (laughs) So take me through that first year in Alcoholics Anonymous. What was it like, you know, the first time through the steps, uh, you know, just all your memories that you have from that time. Um, well, that would be a lot. Well, um, not all. Yeah, a portion of your memory. So my first meetings, um, I remember just a, this. Um, they did much like we do at our group where they passed a newcomer packet with all the phone numbers and the women huddled up around me. Uh, Austin AA was really good at the time. Um, and there was some lady that I had heard her speak in the meeting about being on the marijuana maintenance program. And she wrote next to her name, call any time. And I knew that I was bartending and, you know, getting off work at two, three in the morning. And I may actually need to call any time. So I asked that lady to sponsor me. And, and, um, and so I, you continued bartending I after did. you I got sober, I still bartending. Um, and I actually, I became a good bartender because I was willing to cut people off. And I, um, uh, learned about cash register honesty in AA and, I became a much, um, a much better, you know, an, an honest person. I became that person behind the bar. A good employee. My, my, you would think that it would be looked at like a good employee, but all, but my bosses didn't necessarily like it because I wasn't leading the party anymore. You know, we part, it was fully condoned to party there. And, um, and it was hard for them for me not to be taking shots with everybody and being a part of the party and, you know, an instigator. And, um, they weren't really excited about me becoming a square. (laughs) I'm so square. (laughs) Um, anyway, uh, yeah, my, my, I mean, my first year, in the AA, it does come down to a lot of the, I, I think about being in the bar a lot because that's where I put the tools to action. Um, also, you know, other than behind the judge or in front of the judge, behind the bar, I put the tools to work. You know, there were a lot of times it would be that situation like... One time in particular, my boss asked me to make like 10 shots of this drink I had invented. 
Um, you invented I, one. I did. I had invented a drink. Um, it was called the... Oh, that's so funny. It was called the Gin Daisy. Because <laughs> my name's Jen, and it was... Uh, Daisy was my favorite. So not like... And it was Jen, G-I-N, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, man, that was a good drink. And um, he... It became a favorite of a lot of people at the bar, and he, you know, one night asked me to make like 10 of them, and they were, they were not happy that I wasn't making one for myself. And um, it was a... It was an interesting time, and those that stuff was uncomfortable and hard and it was um it was hard to just not bend my elbow and take one um but i so i i went into the walk-in cooler i went into the bathroom a lot and hit my knees and prayed and and asked god you know for help real surrender kind of helped me and and stayed sober wow so um I know that you are a photographer, right? Yeah. Uh, and were you uh, so, so? And you don't bartend anymore. So there was right, a, some. I was point. also shooting at the time too. I was shooting and bartending, but I wasn't um, shooting enough to pay the bills. So um, I was. I would work down in Austin for a little place called Phototech. It was my first professional photography gig, and we shot frat parties. We shot a lot of graduations. We shot um, proms. We just shot everything. Yeah, at some point, bartending was just not conducive to... I eventually, I met my husband in AA. Bartending wasn't conducive to getting married and having a family that kind of thing so you you mentioned your husband there so you so that you got sober in 1997 did. when did you meet and he came into aa in uh january of 98 and we started hanging out in february of 98 gotcha and then how long was it before you guys got married um let's see we started hanging out at the beginning of february of 98 we moved back to dallas together that summer and um we got married well <laughs> we got married in 2000 we also had our first kid in 2000 so okay so you have two children right yep okay talk to me a little bit about your family um yeah we had um we we got engaged we can't we moved back up to Dallas to be with our family and we tw- switched home groups and we discovered that that was difficult, you know. And so we were we had a wedding planned and everything and we ended up um calling it off. It ended up putting it on hold, but at the time it seemed like calling it off. And then um we just the whole um you know, talked I talked a little bit about restless irritable and discontent, right? So we moved home groups and things weren't exactly the same. When we you were, said you moved home groups, are you talking about in Dallas you were going from one no, home group we, to another? No, you know we lived Austin in Austin. Yeah, we gotcha. lived in Austin. That's where our our home group was. We were plugged in. We had, you know, our people and um and we didn't we were young and and didn't grasp how hard leaving your home group would be. So we moved up to Dallas. We started going to a new group and it just wasn't the same. We weren't doing it right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the same people. And we, I think we both got a little off the beam. We were still going to meetings, but um, I think we got a little off the beam and we let the little relationship stuff of when you first move in with somebody and you don't like exactly how they do everything, we let it start picking at us. So we um, we ended up getting cold feet, calling it off. 
And we realized real quick that we didn't want to do that. And we made up. We were both just wrecked about it and made up and, um, and, and promptly got pregnant with our first kid. Um, and that was, that's Christian. And we, uh, we found out about halfway through that pregnancy that he was going to be disabled. We knew that he had, um, how did you find that out? We, we had our first sonogram when they were going to tell us if it was a boy or a girl, they couldn't tell what he was. And we didn't know that was weird. They sent us to a secondary sonogram. We didn't know that was strange. Um, and it turns out that his legs were twisted up in a way that were covering himself. So they couldn't tell what he was. Um, and that's when they told us that he was, that he was disabled, basically that his legs were deformed. They thought his arms were too. They made us do a lot of testing. They thought that he might die. Actually, they thought he had a disorder called trisomy 13 or 18. And they thought that he wouldn't, they thought he might not live at all. And so I had to do tests to find out if that was the case. And we were terrified and um, had to wait about two weeks for any results to come back. And that's, a, you know, another um, another real experience with being powerless and having to turn, you know, the most important thing over. And um, we were terrified. We did some research at the time, even, you know, um, it's... I'm old. The internet was really preliminarily getting, you know, we had dial up (laughs) to look for research on what was going on with our baby. And, um, we waited about two weeks and the doctor, um, I, that delivered him, I knew personally, he came to my office where I was working and stuck his head in the door and gave me the thumbs up that he didn't have that. And, and we then went from being terrified that we were going to have a disabled kid to we get to have a disabled kid you know we were just so happy that he was gonna live oh god bless you so um so he was born in march of 2000 and um and he since has been a constant example to me that i don't know what's best for myself because i just wouldn't have ordered that to happen that way and at the same time he's just exactly the way he's supposed to be so he's 18 or 19 years he's, old. Can you? He's 18, and he, you know, that kid that was born, like, really with his little legs looked like curly fries. He was under five pounds, and he just had little curly fries for legs. And we, um, he came out of the hospital at five days. We were at the Scottish Rite when he was seven days, and we went for years. We went for the first year, we went almost five days a week, then three days a week, then two days a week. He had a bunch of surgeries. Uh, countless hours of PT. Um, and we, and what were the surgeries in the PT about? Were they trying? He, had, he was born with really severe club feet, and he was born with a disorder called arthrogryposis, which is basically means stiff joints. So his joints are kind of fused. So that he had to have a bunch of surgeries just to be able to walk. Is that just the lower body? Yeah, or the, he had, yeah I said they thought his arms were... Um, malformed also but right before he was born they did another sonogram and said oh look at that his his arms straightened out and and so it was yeah mostly his legs were the issue so he had a hip out of place and they kind of had to build him a hip he had several surgeries on his feet or he had he had surgery on both feet twice and was in a full body cast for three months over his first birthday And he did, you know, tons of PT just to be, we didn't know if he was going to be able to walk. They told us they didn't know. They said, um, they said 
he may walk, he may not walk. He may walk and then not walk. And I was like, you could say, I don't know. Um, so this kid, we didn't know if he would walk. Uh, we worked so hard just to, for him to be able to step up a curb. He actually is a collegiate athlete right now, wrestling for Colorado Mesa University. Wow. Yeah. So he didn't just, I mean, he walks. He doesn't walk quite like everybody else, but he, um, you know, we've just, we came to know him really early as not disabled, but just differently abled. He learned to crawl with his head and he army crawled and he, he, he just, um, he could do a full press on a table when he was like five years old. He just is, he's, he's lean and mean. He's a tough kid. And he's a college athlete he's now. He's a college athlete. Yeah. He wrestles, right? Yep. Oh. That's absolutely fantastic. It's awesome. It's okay, awesome. so when did your other son come along? He he came uh, nine and a half years later. Wow. We had um, uh, we we actually lost a little girl along the way mm-hmm. when Christian was three. We were pregnant with a little girl. So and, let me and just let me back up there real quick. Yeah. So having had that experience with your youngest. Were you tentative about having another child? Yeah, so we that yeah, that's why they're nine and a half years apart. So we we sought genetic counseling. They told us they didn't think it would happen again. And we so we tried again. And when I was about five months pregnant, our little girl died. Um, they couldn't give us clear reasons why, but they th- they said that they thought that she was disabled too. And Christian at the time was three and still doing surgeries and still trying to walk. And, you know, he was, he didn't take his first steps till he was almost three. So he was still just trying to walk. He still used a wheelchair all the time. Um, and, and we, I just felt like, I felt like I didn't know if we could be doing two kids doing surgeries. And so we just decided we were going to be a one kid family and be, you know, grateful for what we've got. And, yeah, it was, uh, that was, I, you and I have this thing, I think about the acceptance page, right? I know the acceptance page. Sometimes I've heard you share that it sometimes a little bit of it rubs you wrong. And I had a couple of years where the acceptance page made me completely crazy because it was really hard to accept that having a baby die. Um, and the, it really shook what my, I, I thought, I had a really solid foundation in AA. I had a solid um, spiritual life, and I thought I thought I had a solid conception of God. And when that happened, I got really shaken. And that whole nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake made me want to punch people when I heard it for about two years after that. <laughs> um, and I, I ultimately, I had to, like... Um, completely rethink my conception of God before I could move on because I, for a while there after that, I didn't feel like I had a God that I could trust to turn my life over to, you know, trusting God became really difficult for me after that for a while. And, um, so, um, we didn't, we didn't have our other son until nine and a half years after our first son, because, you know, a lot to do with that. And, um, we, uh, in, in 07, I lost my dad suddenly to a heart attack. Who was one of my, he was my, you know, right hand man. I worked with him. We were together all the time and he was 
Christian's biggest cheerleader and we were all together all the time and it was sudden and shocking. And I bring that up just to say that I was having to meditate all the time just to stay sober and sort of sane after that I was desperate and, um, I was working my ass off in Alcoholics Anonymous not to drink over that. And during that time, during meditation and stuff like that, I felt my heart open to the idea of having another kid, which was really weird. And I felt it felt obvious that it wasn't my plan because I thought it was a bad idea to give up sleep again. And I didn't want to have a kid on a planet without my dad on it. And um, it became real obvious that it was, I was being led because all my reasons were, this is a terrible idea, but it just felt right. And so we talked about it. We talked about maybe adopting, um, and, and ultimately we came down to the decision that if we were meant to have two disabled kids, we were meant to have two disabled kids. And Christian was at that time, nine and a half and way more independent. And we could see that he was going to be okay. And he had been begging for a sibling and he had, you know, he was wrecked when we lost the one in 03. And so we just, um, went for it and we got, um, we got Henry who is, um, physically capable in spades. (laughs) Yeah. So how has Henry fared through all this? You know, I guess what, here's what I'm thinking about is that, you know, with all the challenges uh, that uh, Christian presented, uh, you know, uh, has has Henry just kind of fallen in and that? Yeah. He never even noticed it. Like he never even noticed that Christian was different because he wasn't different to him. And, uh, we, we noticed when Henry first started learning to run, he was a toddler. And I mean, he was just blowing and going from jump and he, he started running and we noticed watching him run that he was like lifting his arms up when he runs. I know it's, you can't see what I'm doing, but he lifted his arms high when he ran, like, um, his arms were bent up and he was moving his arms back and forth really fast, like for momentum to make him run. And we just couldn't like for a while, we couldn't figure it out. We're like, what is he doing? Why does he run like that? And then we look, we one day, you know, looked over and realized that's, that's how Christian runs. Christian ran like that. He used his arms for momentum because he couldn't, his legs didn't have muscle and his joints were stiff. So he used his arms to kind of hike him up to be able to move fast. And so, uh, that's just what that's what Henry learned. Henry Henry wants to be just like his big brother still does. He never we had to explain to him that Christian was different. The first times it came up when we started talking about everybody being born different and some people are different and I would say, you know, kind of like Christian's legs are a little bit different, you know, and Henry would be like, "What?" No. <laughs> he didn't even he didn't even notice. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. We're getting to the end of time here, right? And uh, what have we left on the table that you want to make sure that you get out in regards to your story and whatever you would want to share with a newcomer Mm. just starting down this path? Yeah, I mean, I guess... um... I guess for me, my story is we've, I've gone through some heavy stuff sober, you know, and had to, um, I've had to digest some big chunks of truth, not just about myself, but about life on life's terms. And, um, 
ultimately I'm left feeling like I'm so grateful to have had the tools of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't have survived. I, I wouldn't, I wasn't just looking at prison time. I was also drinking on a bleeding ulcer. I was crashing cars right and left. I was, I was trying real hard to die at an early age, you know? So I, I don't think I would have survived, but, um, man, I'm, I'm the type of person that I could get in fights with coat hangers in my closet, right? Like my shirt won't come off the hanger and I'll just freak out. Come my shirt. You're just coming up. And I, so for somebody that couldn't even, you know, get dressed in the morning without having a full blown freak out to, um, to be able to walk through actual real life, hard stuff and stay sober is, it's miraculous to me <laughs> and not just sober, but reasonably happy in spite of it, you know, and, um, with the capability of having a new attitude and outlook, um, none of those things are possible without continuously picking up the tools, you know, and, um, I would, some days I think I don't want to have to work so hard to be normal. And, 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 and early on I would have thought, I don't want to go to AA for the next, you know, 20, however many years. Um, but in hindsight, I'm so grateful because I know that I wouldn't have had a shot at life. And those times when things have been the hardest that I picked up the tools instead of picking up a drink or a drug, which I felt like, you know, I did not, I wanted to escape and not feel so many times through the hard stuff. And having not done that has made it possible for some of the greatest moments of my life to happen. You know, some of the greatest moments ever have happened way after the hard stuff. And I would have given up and not been present and gotten to see some of the most amazing stuff in life. So, um, I'm just left with gratitude on a regular basis that I have the tools, whether stuff is going good or stuff's going bad. I'm, I'm eternally grateful and indebted to Alcoholics Anonymous for giving me, not just saving my life, but giving me a life that's worth living. We always say, and I know you've heard this many times before, is that, uh, for example, both Jen and I are not, uh, we don't represent AA, but we are examples that Alcoholics Anonymous does work in people's lives. And, uh, you had me tearing up during this interview, Jen. Uh, I appreciate. Uh, I, see, that wasn't that hard, was it? No, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to listen to it either. <laughs> oh, you'll have to listen to it. I can already tell you it's going to be good. To. Will you hand me that big book that's sitting yeah. right there next to you? Thank you. As you can tell, uh, we just do all this stuff on the fly here in the Sober Speak studio. <laughs> All right, so this is page 164 from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Jen, Mm -hmm. as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. If you need to reach out to me, I'm at john at soberspeak.com or feedback at soberspeak.com. They go to the same place. Jen, thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure.